when we stopped last week, Cyrus of Persia, who's shown here in the yellow, had conquered the Medes. And if you look closely, you can see that Medea, that's the Medes, that's part of the yellow part. He has set his sights on the Lydians who are over to the west in the dark blue. Um, the Babylonian empire shown in green is ruled by their regent, Belshazzar, while their actual king, Nabonidus, which I've, I say his name every different every time, so just forgive me on that, uh, is inexplicably absent for 10 years. He just like picks up and leaves. He doesn't want to do this whole emperor thing. So all of this is historical fact. During the first year of um, Belshazzar's regency, Daniel's lying in bed and he has a series of dreams and visions that he writes down. And this is all in chapter, Daniel, we're doing chapter seven and eight today. As the dream begins, he sees the winds of heaven churning the sea and from the sea comes four great beasts. The first one was like a lion, but it had wings like an eagle, he says. And as I watched, its wings were torn off and it was made to stand on two feet like a human. And it was given the mind of a human. The second great beast looked kind of like a bear. It had three ribs in its teeth and it was raised up on one of its sides and was told, get up and devour much flesh. Then I saw a third great beast come up out of the sea. It was a leopard with four bird-like wings and four heads, and it was given dominion. And after that, a fourth beast arose from the sea. It was terrifying and tremendously strong. It had huge iron teeth that it used to break into pieces. And any pieces escaping the teeth were crushed underfoot. It was different than the other beasts. And it had 10 horns. And, a, and while I was pondering the 10 horns, another horn, a little one, grew up between them and plucked out three of the former horns by their roots. This little horn had the eyes of a human and a mouth that boasted. At this point in the narrative, Daniel inserts a poem beginning in verse nine. He says that as he looked, thrones were set up and the ancient of days was seated. His hair and his clothes were pure white, and his throne was aflame, and its wheels were blazing, and a river of fire flowed out from the ancient of days, and thousands upon thousands upon thousands ministered to him, and myriads stood before him. The poem ends as the court is seated and the books are opened. Then Daniel continues with his narrative. I kept watching to see what would happen to the horn speaking boastful words. And behold, the beast was killed and its body destroyed. And it was yielded to that great fire. Dominion was taken away from the other three beasts as well. But they were allowed to live for a set time. And I saw a being like a man coming with the clouds of heaven, and he came before the Ancient of Days and was brought near into his presence, and to him was given dominion and glory 
and kingship so that all peoples of all nations and of all languages might serve him. His dominion will never pass away and will never be destroyed. In my vision, I was distraught, so I approached someone standing near me and asked him what it all meant. And he told me that the four great beasts coming up out of the sea are four great kings who will arise from the earth, but that it is the holy ones of the Most High who will ultimately receive the kingdom, and it will be theirs forever and ever. Then I asked him about that fourth beast, the one different from the others. I wanted to know the meaning of its ten horns and the meaning of that other horn, the one that grew up and became greater than the others and uprooted three of them and spoke so boastfully. Even as I watched, this horn was making war on the holy ones and was winning until the Ancient of Days came and delivered justice for the holy ones of the Most High. And the time came for them to possess the kingdom. What does this all mean? I asked. And this is the explanation he gave me. The fourth beast is a fourth earth, earthly kingdom. It will be different than the others and will trample the whole earth and break it into pieces. The ten horns are ten kings. And after them, another king will arise. He will be different as well. He will subdue three kings. He will speak against the Most High and harass and wear out the Holy Ones. And he will try to change the appointed times and the law. And the Holy Ones will be given into his hands for a time, times, and half a time. But the court will sit and will take away his dominion, destroying it forever. And the dominion and power and all the greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be given to the people, the holy ones of the most high. It is an everlasting kingdom and all other dominions shall serve and obey it. And that was the end of my vision. My thoughts greatly alarmed me and I was really shaken, but I kept it all to myself. Poor Daniel, that's a lot to take in. Let's go back and look at his vision and compare it to his historical context. The churning sea where all the beasts came from is the people of the earth. That was specifically made clear in the interpretation given to Daniel, you know, by in the text right there in the, in the passages. Out of the sea came four huge beasts. The first one was like a lion, but it had wings like an eagle. So I don't know if you noticed, but one of the major emblems of Babylon is a winged lion. If you look really closely at this mosaic, you, you will see the wings kind of sloping down across the, the foreleg and the belly of this lion. And this winged lion is one of the large in images on the half mile processional way of the Ishtar gate that Nebuchadnezzar built in Babylon. In Daniel's dream, the lion had the wings of an eagle, but that can also mean vulture. And I think perhaps that is a better option here. A lion with the wings of an eagle or a vulture gives a pretty apt description of the terrifying power of Babylon.
But as Daniel watched, its wings were torn off and it was made to stand on two feet like a human. And it was given the mind of a human. And I'm wondering if that's a description of Babylon as we saw it at the end of last week. Nebuchadnezzar's line has been defeated. That, I think, might be the wings being torn off. And Babylon is now in the hands of a usurper, Nabonidus, who ends up leaving the empire in the hands of his son, Belshazzar, as regent for 10 years. No longer royal lineage, but a human with the mind of a human. If you, if you want to take it that way, that's just one way to interpret this. And if this is the case, then the second great beast, the one that looks like a bear, would be whatever empire ends up crushing Babylon, right? And we know from last week that it's Cyrus the Great who conquers Babylon during the reign of Nabonidus and Belshazzar. Remember how the bear has three ribs in its teeth? I'm wondering if those three ribs might be Medea, the Medes, Persia, and Lydia, the three nations that make up the Achaemenid Empire formed by Cyrus the Great. If so, then the next beast would represent the empire that conquers the Achaemenid Empire. This beast is a leopard with four heads and four bird-like wings. History tells us it is Alexander the Great who conquers the Achaemenid Empire. And the speed with which he does it is astounding. Perhaps that's the meaning of the four bird-like wings. Alexander comes to the Greek throne at the age of 20. And by the age of 30, he has conquered the entire Achaemenid Empire all the way south to include Egypt and east to include India. The only reason he stops is because after the extensive campaign in the Indian subcontinent, his soldiers mutiny. They want to go home. And so Alexander turns for home. But he only makes it as far as Babylon, where he is stricken ill and dies at the age of 33 with no recognized successor. There ensues four decades of power struggles among um, Alexander's generals before Alexander's Greek empire is formally divided between four successors, the Ptolemy dynasty in Egypt, the Seleucid dynasty in Persia, Lysimachus in Thrace and Asia Minor, and of course, Alexander's original kingdom, Macedonia. Four major kingdoms, historical fact. I wonder if these four resulting kingdoms are the four heads of the beast that was the great Greek empire. These were certainly the four power sources within that empire. So then a fourth beast arises from the sea of people, right? It's terrifying and tremendously strong. It has huge iron teeth and bronze claws that it uses for breaking and crushing. It's different than the other beasts. And it has those tin horns. Well, we know from the interpretation given by the man in the vision that the horns represent kings. And the number 10 must also have meaning but its meaning is open to lots of interpretations. When I was teaching my first class on Daniel years ago, I used one of our backpack tools. I did a search on the number 10 to see how it is used throughout scripture. And I discovered 
that there are a few times where it clearly means a specific number, as in someone's age of 110. Um, and it could definitely, these, this could, the, aim, the, the vision could be referring to 10, specifically 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10 horns or kings. But there are other primary reasons of 10 in scripture. The literal meaning is not the normal one in scripture. 10 is very often used to describe a selection of elite people or objects of preference out of a larger group, like kings, right? It would be, the kings would be a, a small elite subgroup. So here's just a few examples in scripture. In Genesis 18, 10 is the minimum number of righteous people necessary to save Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember that? In Genesis 24, Abraham's servant takes 10 camels from Abraham's great herds, and gives Rebekah gold bracelets weighing 10 shekels as a promise of the riches Abraham's son Isaac can offer. In Joshua 22.14, 10 chiefs are selected to represent all the households of Israel in an important matter. In Ruth 4.2, 10 elders are selected to make a decision about Ruth and Boaz. So these are just like a handful of many, many such examples. This is a major way 10 is used in scripture. The other meaning of 10 is as a placeholder for plenty or lots of something. It's not as big as we've come to understand 40 to mean. It's not lots and lots, but instead means plenty. For example, in 1 Samuel 1.8, Elkanah says to the childless Hannah, am I not better to you than 10 sons? Meaning lots of sons, right? And remember that refrain we find all over 1 Samuel, where people sing, Saul has, has slain his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. Here, 10 is a multiplier, meaning lots more. And here's another one, 2 Samuel 18.3 where the aging David wants to personally lead a battle and the people talk him out of it saying, you are worth 10,000 of us, meaning lots of us. And remember Hezekiah wanting a sign that his life will be extended. And Isaiah says to him, well, do you want the shadow on the sundial to move forward 10 steps or backwards 10 steps, meaning a lot. Do you, you know how you want to go, go a, lot, a lot forward, a lot backwards. There's many, many more examples where you could substitute the word plenty or lots in the verse, and it would mean exactly the same thing. So based on our discoveries using that backpack tool, I think it makes sense that the 10 horns represent 10 kings. That would be an elite selection, which can be part of the meaning of 10. But I think it also could mean that these 10 horns don't necessarily mean literally or only 10 kings, but that it could mean lots of kings. So who does eventually overthrow these four pieces of the Greek empire? Most of you probably know the answer to this one. We're getting to more familiar territory now. It's the Romans. While Alexander the Great is busy in the east and the south, the Roman Republic is gathering power in Italy. But it is a republic, a democracy. It's an experimental government of the many. And it's not particularly suited to empire building until Julius Caesar comes along just before the time of Christ, and well after the book of Daniel is written. We know Daniel is 
is probably written around 165 BCE, like a lot, a lot, a lot before the time of Christ. So here's a picture of um, the Roman Empire at its peak in 117 Common Era. Notice that uh, you know, the red parts are, are the land. Notice that it's all those same parts of the world we've been studying, but it's now spread much further west and north. Just before the time of Christ, Julius Caesar precipitates an identity crisis for the Roman Republic. And after his assassination and the ensuing power struggle, power is finally consolidated in the naming of Octavian Augustus as the Principus, the emperor in all but title. So it makes a ton of sense that the Roman Empire which is definitely fairly characterized as having crushing iron teeth and ripping bronze claws, would also have lots of kings or localized centers of power. We know from the New Testament that this is exactly how it governs, and it changes the world irrevocably. It is definitely a different kind of beast from the ones that came before. And eventually, the Roman Empire dissolves into the various nations and kingdoms which survive to this very day. We still travel roads the Romans laid, follow polity they developed, use language they formed. In many ways, although the Roman Empire has disintegrated, it is still in the DNA of the nations. So what about that other king, that little one that grows up in power and plucks out three of the former kings by their roots? The specificity of that description makes me think the three horns it uproots may literally be three kingdoms. And notice that the little horn has the eyes of a human and a mouth that boasts constantly against the most high. I think the emphasis on the human means this king is not necessarily a nation or a principality of some sort, but an actual person. But beyond that, we have no idea who this powerful little horn might be at this point. We'll have to put this imagery on the shelf for now until we get a little more information. But all this does remind me of King Nebuchadnezzar's first dream. Remember that one? Remember the statue with the gold head that represented Nebuchadnezzar and, and the Babylonian empire? Could that correspond to the winged lion in this new vision? It was to be followed by a lesser kingdom that would rule the world. That would presumably correlate to the Achaemenid empire under Cyrus the Great, right? And then there was the bronze torso and thighs that represented a third kingdom to rule the world. That would correlate to the four-headed leopard, representing the Greek empire and the four kingdoms that arose out of it. The last kingdom had legs of iron, and that definitely tracks with the fourth beast that has teeth of iron. But the feet of the statue were a weird mixture of iron and clay that would not hold together. And that actually makes sense if the fourth kingdom is the Roman Empire. Those feet of iron and clay are perhaps the world as we know it today, having grown from the Roman Empire, but definitely not cohesive in any way. Remember what happens to those feet in Daniel's dream? A stone, not one that had been cut and finished by human hands, but a raw stone, 
strikes the statue on its feet, shattering them. And the entire statue crumples and blows away like so much chaff in the wind. And that tracks with Daniel's vision today, where all power and dominion is eventually stripped from the kingdoms of the four beasts. But today we have new information. In Daniel's vision today, all power and dominion is given to the one who is brought into the presence of the Ancient of Days. All power and dominion is stripped from the other kingdoms. And after a time of harassment by the little horn with the boasting mouth, the kingdom of God's holy ones is established forever and ever. Kind of make a note of this kind of broad timeline. Um, it's, it's, it's very interesting because the, the, that end, end bit um, sounds like end times, right? That forever and ever holy one bit. Well, two years later, Daniel has another vision. This vision is in chapter eight. This time he sees himself in the city of Susa, north of Babylon. And this time he sees a ram with two long horns standing beside the canal in the city. And the newer of the horns is longer and grows up later. And the ram charges west, north, and south. No one can stand up to it. It comes very great. So that all sounds like Cyrus the Great and his kingdom of Persians, who conquer and and absorb the older kingdom of the Medes. The angel Gabriel actually confirms this to Daniel later in the chapter. Then a goat with one big horn appears coming from the west. It gallops across the earth without touching the ground. And that definitely sounds like Alexander the Great, right? It charges the ram and shatters its two horns. Yeah, that would definitely fit with Alexander the Great conquering the Medes and the Persians. But at the height of its power, its large horn is broken off and four other horns grow in its place. And that totally works. Alexander himself dies young, and eventually the Greek empire is split into four pieces. And all of this too is confirmed by the angel Gabriel. Out of the four horns comes one horn that starts small, but grows south and east towards the beautiful land. Ah, here we are. We seem to have skipped over that fourth beast with the teeth of iron, and the vision seems to be addressing that single boastful horn. Maybe we'll get some new information here. For one thing, from this description, we know it comes from northwest of Palestine. The beautiful land is like another phrase that's used for uh, the, the promised land. It grows up. So this um, uh, one horn grows up to the host of heaven and throws down some of the stars of the hosts and tramples them. Now that's weird. Clearly, this is speak all of this is speaking in spiritual terms, right? But this is the first time there's been any hint that an earthly power could throw down any part of the host of heaven, the Lord's army. This is the first hint we get of of kind of spiritual opposition. Um and and we need to hold that thought for further clarification. It declares itself equal to the commander of the host. Well, that would be the horn declaring itself equal to Jesus or God. I I don't think this is going to end well for the boastful horn. 
The little horn removes the daily sacrifice to the Lord and destroys his sanctuary. God's people and the daily sacrifice are given over to it. Hmm. So in this point in history, during the time of Daniel, there is no temple and no sacrifices. Like when this whole, all this vision starts, the temple's already been destroyed. So Daniel's prophecy is telling him the temple will be rebuilt and sacrifices will be reinstated sometime during the power struggles of these four kingdoms, these, you know, these four successive empires. The little horn prospers in everything it does, and it flings truth to the ground. The angel Gabriel later tells Daniel that this will be an impudent king, a master of intrigue. He will become mighty, but not by his own power. He will lay waste to the holy ones and will consider himself far superior. He will be cunning and shrewd and deceitful, and many will fall to him. He will even stand against the prince of princes, but he will be destroyed and not by human hands. In his vision, Daniel overhears two holy ones speaking. One asks, how long will it take for, the, for this vision to be fulfilled? And Daniel is told it will take 2,300 evenings and mornings before the sanctuary will be re-consecrated. So that's cryptic. If it's, if, if we're, if it's 2,300 a set of evenings and mornings, you know, that would be about six and a half years with years measured in the 360-day lunar year of the Bible, okay? Most interpreters, however, count each evening and morning separately because there were evening and morning sacrifices. So if you count sacrifices, which is two per day, that would be 1150 days, which is three years and a few months. But none of this seems to have anything to do with the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. It's definitely been a whole lot more than six years since the temple was destroyed when Jerusalem fell. I mean, this all of these visions with Daniel began after 70 years of exile. So this too needs to go on the shelf of things that need to be clarified. We're just going to leave question marks here for the moment. The vision ends as Gabriel tells Daniel to seal up the vision for it concerns the distant future. Poor Daniel is exhausted and appalled and cannot imagine what these visions mean. Overwhelming, right? <laughs> We're going to stop here because the, the vision gets interpreted and expanded significantly. And we'll, I want to do that next week. I want to I want us to take some time to look at the bare bones of these three visions and compare them to each other and sort of absorb the overall framework of the three prophecies. We'll need to have that overall framework down solidly before moving on to the next part. And I'm thinking this might be a good day to stay together um, and talk about this together rather than uh, breaking apart into little groups. Um, unless y'all would prefer breaking apart into little groups. So up to you. No. Okay. Well, turn your uh, mics on so we can talk about it. And, um, if, if we, what I did was in the study guide, if you pull it out, 
I separated at the top, Daniel, uh, the first column is the statue vision from Daniel chapter two. And then the second column is from today. It's the four beasts from today uh, in Daniel chapter seven. The third column is the ram, the goat, and the deceitful king from today, which was in chapter eight. And then in the last column, I put the interpretations because Daniel is so smart. When he, when he has a vision or a dream, even while he's in it and doing it, he always asks somebody, what does that mean? What does that mean? What's going on? When is this going to happen? It's great. So he ends up getting interpretations, you know? And so every time he gets an interpretation, I put it in the fourth column. So this chart is kind of an attempt to line these all up. So the first thing is that head, the statue had that head of gold, right? That would correspond reading across the line to the lion with the wings of the eagle or the vulture and its wings being stripped off and standing up like a man and being given like a man. And there, we didn't have anything to correlate with that in chapter eight. That wasn't in there. So the actual interpretation, this is not, you know, the, the, the interpretations of the things that are happened on earth, both, in both cases, it says those, those are Nebuchadnezzar. And then below that, in the bottom of the, the box, I've put like historical stuff. So, so I've, I should have like color coded the historical stuff so you can tell the difference between what was an interpretation and what was the historical stuff. But historically, we saw Nebuchadnezzar's grandson was assassinated and the throne usurped by Nabonidus, right? Mm -hmm. That makes sense, I think, to me. Does that make sense to you guys? Okay. So that, this is the time to ask questions and say, this doesn't make sense when, as we go through this stuff. That's what this part is for. I already know this stuff. So you can ask. This is for you. <laughs> say that just because I wrote it on the paper doesn't mean that's the way to see it okay it doesn't mean that's how it has to be so let's move down the statue we're down to the silver part the the silver um, chest and arms and that uh, in Daniel 7 that would have um, corresponded to the bear with three ribs in his mouth um, raised up on one side. What do you think that raised up on one side means? What what visual does that come to bring to mind to you guys? I was trying to decide if that was like right to left or, or, up and down, or, or back right. and front. <laughs> exactly, right? Like one paw outreach. Yeah. I mean, what if the what if the bear was laying down in the vision? It didn't say, you know. And somebody's like yanking up and saying, "Get up," you know, uh, yanking up a you know a, a, an arm and a leg. Um, I thought it meant he was going to the bathroom. Nice <laughs> <laughs> one. So somebody's lived on a farm too much, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so we've got the bear with his three ribs and his teeth. He's raised on one side. Um, and then in the, in the chapter eight vision, 
that we have a ram with long horns where one lo- one horn's longer than the other, but it's newer than the other, hmm. right? Um, and I don't know what that means. Do y'all have any, I, I put it in here because kind of chronologically that seems to fit a, ho- a whole lot more. It seems to fit better definitely with the um, uh, Achaemenid empire under Cyrus the Great than it did Nebuchadnezzar. Yeah, yeah the, the footnotes in my study Bible sort of agrees with that. They said the two horns were Media and Persia, and that the longer one was Persia, the more dominant kingdom. Yeah, because Cyrus the Great, we're going to come to this in a bit um, in our classes, because we're getting like a, a Daniel's looking through the binoculars. So we're getting all the spoilers here. But we're going to actually get to these pieces as they live through them. You know, mm-hmm. we're going to we're going to see the people of Israel live through all this. Uh, so, um, uh, yeah, so so the Achaemenid Empire, Cyrus, actually, I think his mother was a Mede and he was had deep roots in the Medes and became um, king of Persian empire and then there was this kind of power struggle and he ended up attacking the Medes and taking them over it's just it's very intertwined there those two kingdoms are okay well following on go ahead Woody so all of this obviously means that Daniel was written after all of these historical events occurred that does seem to be that's I will tell you that's what scholars think you know that is what the 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 general consensus is. Um, and we were talking, Marlene was talking uh, as we were gathering for class um, and about that. And um, there is, there, there are several ways you could look at it. And it's, it's a whole spectrum, as you can imagine. There are the literalists, which is where I came from, uh, that believe that Daniel was a prophet and he knew all this stuff that this was in his vision and it was that and that this is one of those most incredible and detailed prophecies and accurate prophecies in all of history and this isn't even the most specific one we're going to get to we're going to get to one that's even more specific than this you know it tracks with every little tiny detail that happens over these time periods and so I was telling Marlene that that when I first taught Daniel as a class, I I think it was back in 2006, somewhere around in there, um, I was shocked when I did my research to find out that scholars didn't believe that. (laughs) And it just shook my world. It rattled my truth. It, It was like, what? (laughs) and that they even called Daniel pseudo Daniel they call the writer of Daniel pseudo Daniel because he wrote in the name of Daniel that's what that means you know Mm -hmm. and um because of all these specific details and so there's they're on like this other end of the spectrum that there's no possible way this is prophecy it just it, it doesn't happen like that it doesn't track with the prophecy we see in the rest of the bible it's you know it's just not. And, and, and yet there is a middle ground here. And that is that Daniel was a prophet. We do see elements of 
this end of days vision that is very consistent with all the other prophets in the Bible, his vision of God with the, that, that refining fire. This I was just, it was such a beautiful picture of that fire flowing from the throne of God, you know, like a river um, of, of, of justice and righteousness and just holiness. You know, we've seen that in other prophets and, 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 and uh, this is not, we have seen that in how God relates to his people. Right. So there is, much about Daniel that is very grounded and very prophetic. Um, and so what may have happened is, as we've learned, Daniel was a prophet, lived during this time frame, um, probably not quite as long as the book would imply, but, but during this time frame. And then someone later took that information after having lived through much of it and went back and added the layers of detail about how it, how it happened, you know? So we may, that, that, that we may not be able to see, we may not be able to peel the layers back to see what Daniel's core prophecy was. That's another way to look at it. You got three, three choices. I'm sure there's more, you know? So, but I do, I'm in that middle camp. I I do believe Daniel was an amazing prophet, respected by God, speaking truth, clear knowledge of of the ancient of days of God and uh, and of the Messiah. You know, with no words to put to that, right? Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of things in Daniel that are still prophetic, even if we say, even if we go with the, with the scholars who think, oh no, it's pseudo Daniel writing this down in 165, you know, BCE. And after Rome has come, you know, come to power and all this stuff, there are still things in that Daniel says that are beyond that point in history and are fully accurate. So just saying. There's, there's some real prophecy in this book and well, and we see that as we, as we go through. And maybe the people, the the pseudo Daniels, maybe they just added little bits to it to make it match up to history. Yeah, exactly. You know, Um, they didn't have any compunction about doing that sort of thing in -hmm. in this, these ancient writers. That's, that's how they did things that you're supposed to do that. It wasn't a good story if you didn't do that, you know? Um, So, so uh, totally. I was was just going to say, that's a component of storytelling is, you know, embedding rich, um, you know, things to keep people captivated. But um, when Marlene made the comment about Persia being the more dominated, it dominant, I don't know, it brought to me immediately the image of the bear we were talking about one size raised that that could be a dominant you know he's he's got ribs and meat in his mouth and now his paws extended and you know domination mine not yours so cool yeah uh, yeah exactly I don't know exactly all right we're, we're trying to we're trying to correlate the the columns of the chart together right Correct. We're trying to read right. across from left to right. Um, and so, so I think, I think you're absolutely right, you know, and, but what I find interesting here is that the bear had three ribs 
whereas the ram had two horns. Let's see. So, you know, I showed you the whole bit about the Medes and the Persians and then um, uh, Lydia, which they eventually overtook. So that could be the three ribs and the two horns could just be the original Medes and Persians, you know, um, because there was a time time lag there. So who, who knows at all? Well, you know, it, it, it seems like <clears throat> the with those two images, it, it might actually be depicting something different where, where the bear has the three ribs in his teeth would imply more devouring and, denom and, and domination, mm. where the horns are more like the weapons of the ram. Gotcha. So it's, you know, it seems like it could still tie up because when they took over Lydia, mm -hmm. um, that these would all be three kingdoms that were devoured by the, the sure. ultimate empire. Right, right. So it all kind of hangs together though. You know, we can really pretty feel pretty comfortable with that strip. Um, I think. So let's move to the next strip. The well, just, just, to, yeah. just to clarify one thing. Uh, the Ancient of Days refers to God? Uh, it seems to from the imagery with the, the fire coming from the throne that is not a scary, scary fire in the sense of the thousands and, and upon thousands upon thousands who are ministering to God are not in any way terrified by this fire, right? And, you know, it is an um, it is an expression of life and holiness, seemingly, and it, and the fact that the throne is referred to as having wheels is very consistent with what we saw in Ezekiel, um, with mm -hmm. the Caribbean, with the wheels within the wheels and the eyes and the wheels, and it rolls everywhere the spirit goes. You know, so um, the the imagery all matches up to God. I think. I don't know who else it would be. Okay. That, that, yeah. that, does that make sense? Do you have thoughts on that, Woody? Uh, no, I was just curious. I, I wasn't, <clears throat> wasn't yeah. sure what it meant. Yeah, I, it's it's a new term, right? We haven't run across the term ancient of days before. So, uh, and you'll recognize some that used in old hymns if you're from a church tradition. Um, this is where that phrase comes from. So in the torso and thighs of bronze, in Daniel 7, that is the leopard that has four bird-like wings and four heads. Uh, the, and that would correspond to, in, the, in chapter 8, with the goat that has one prominent head um, that comes from the west and crosses the earth without touching the ground. It just flies across the earth, um, but at the height of its power, the large horn is broken off and replaced by four horns. And that uh, just really fits really well with what happened in history. You know, mm -hmm. that is the Greek empire built by Alexander the Great. He did it in 10 years between the age of 20 and 30. He conquered the world. What were you doing between the ages of 20? <laughs> but I want to know. <laughs> not that much <laughs> and he he must have been a phenomenal general and a charismatic person and his men would follow him anywhere but they followed him and 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 they're all the way in the end at the end and it's been 10 years and they're done they're done 
you know, and they're ready to go home and they meet me. And so he has to go home. And I thought it was just amazing that where he stopped and where he died was Babylon. Yeah. Like what a coincidence, right? I lived in Greece for a couple of years and uh, I'm not probably remembering all of this accurately, but they are very proud of Alexander, the, the great Alexander. And I want to say, I think I remember them talking about there is a mountain where they believe that's where he either died and the mountain is supposed to be his profile. So the way there is either a rock or something that they, the Greeks believed in, they're so proud of saying this mountain is, I think it's either where he died or where something happened where the way the rock split is supposed to be his profile. <laughs> wow. Interesting, here I am. I never would have thought that I would be learning about <laughs> Bible study. <laughs> this is this is a far-ranging prophecy here so alexander dies at the age of 33 under mysterious circumstances i mean you have to know that foul play was probably involved here although people are divided over what actually happened to the guy and he doesn't have a successor his wife is actually pregnant but they don't know whether she is going to have a, a, a girl or a boy. And nobody involved intends to wait around to find that out. <laughs> and there's nobody strong enough to, to become actual regent over the entire empire. There just isn't. All he's got is generals. He was all about military, you know. So he's got these generals and they just start fighting each other and taking chunks um, uh, the, there's an Egyptian chunk and there's a Seleucid chunk and there's a, a, a Greek chunk and there's a, you know, uh, uh, all kind of chunks that they take. There's a chunk in between the Seleucids and the Greeks that's called um, Thrace and Asia Minor. So anyway, those four, I, in, oh, well, there you go. I, they're listed in your study guide. Son of a mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so those those um, generals do ultimately split his empire into four parts and they rule it as kings. They rule their pieces as kings. We're going to see them fight with each other constantly. We're going to see them intermarry. We're going to see, you know, Egypt take this part and, and the Seleucids and Egypt try to, you know, they try to intermarry. Sometimes they try to intermarry for good reasons. And sometimes they try to intermarry just as a, like a Trojan horse, you know, to come in and weaken the kingdom. It's just amazing. All the intrigue that, that actually happens when we get to the parts where this actually happens. So are you ready for the next part? All right. Next page, we're to the legs of iron. And that's on the statue. Uh, I, I find it interesting that it's the legs. If this is the Roman Empire, think about the, how it expanded. You know, up until now, the world in the Bible has been this whole fertile crescent. It's been from, you know, the whole fertile Mesopotamian, fertile crescent, Palestine, Egypt. All of our stories have concentrated there. And that fits with the head, the chest, and the torso, right? But now this thing's got legs. 
<laughs> when he gets to Rome. And Rome pushes west all the way to Spain. It pushes north through the European, what will, what will become the European continent. It pushes into England. I myself walked on Hadrian's Wall in England, up at the border of Scotland and England. It's there, they they vastly expanded the concept of the world. So in chapter seven, in the four beasts, that they would be the different beast with the iron teeth that crushes and tramples with the tin horns. Um, and so and now if you look at my, I did, I, there is method in my madness. I did not just space this out like willy nilly. I tried to space this out so that you could read it left to right. So let's look at the different beast. It, that very first little bullet point, the different beast with the iron teeth crushing and trampling. There was not a corresponding vision in chapter eight. You know, there wasn't a piece for that. Um, so all we really know is that it, the interpretation in the Bible says the beast is a kingdom that will be different and will trample and crush the whole world. In Daniel chapter seven, that beast has 10 horns. That's the spiritual view of it. And the interpretation says the 10 horns are 10 kings who come from this different kingdom. See that in the fourth column? So you have to, when you're reading any prophecy, but especially Daniel, you have to be sure to remember that when these visions are happening, they are spiritual views, not literal views. That there are spiritual views, but when you get an interpretation of it in scripture, that is the, the literal physical, this is what happens. Okay. So Daniel, among all the prophets, splits those out for us. The rest of them just kind of jumbled it all up together. <laughs> In, in pretzel time, um, but but Daniel really is a, he's a very careful, methodical, scholarly type of guy, you know, and, and he splits it between the spiritual view and the interpretation, the actual literal what happens. So, so on the third bullet point under chapter seven, we've got one boastful horn displaces three horns. It has eyes like a human and a boastful mouth. Now we do have a parallel in chapter eight. One horn rises out of the four horns of the Greek empire. It starts small, but it grows to reach and threaten the host of heaven. So remember, this is the spiritual view. It's not talking about some earthly king fighting with heaven. You know, it's, it's, it's spiritually what's going on. There is a, and this is, probably one of the places where we see most graphically that for everything that's happening physically on earth, there is a spiritual parallel track. It's, it's happening spiritually and physically in the same way that we as humans are spiritual and physical. You cannot separate one from the other. It is the same. We, our bodies, ourselves, we are patterned after how the world, how the spiritual realm, how the physical world, how earth and heaven work. Yeah, and that may be a new concept for y'all. When I first heard this, it made me think of Lucifer. And 
I'm not certain if that's on target or not, but it seems to be a reference to evil in the world. I would have to say that I would agree that this king is by definition doing evil in the world. This is definitely evil. Okay. Um, I, th- we have not so far come across any personification um, of evil in what we would call, you know, Satan per se, so far in our studies, we saw, you know, we saw the evil influence in the serpent at the, in the garden of Eden. Right. Yeah. And we read the, um, uh, that kind of Mesopotamian mythological prefix to the book of Job, where, where the adversary was personified the beginning of Job. I, uh, my, my thought when I first heard this, um, and you brought into Rome that that could correlate with that timeline is that Rome did, um, wage war on the people and Rome, the Christian people or the, the, the Jewish people. Yes. The Jewish people and the Christian people with the lion thing, you yes. know, were later, mm-hmm. later on. So that could be where, you know, yep. um, that makes sense too. That sounds more like Nero. <laughs> yeah. So there's lots of, um, and, and so I think Julia is on track that this is evil. Okay. It's clearly uh, this, this, this guy is setting himself, the earthly version of this guy is setting himself up against God and calling himself God and all these things. Um, I, I do, I don't find in here a personification of it, this being Satan, like as in a person, but I'm not the boss. So, you know, you get to, 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 to turn this over in your heads and think about what does this mean? What could this mean? So um, in, in chapter eight, the spiritual view as, is that one horn, one king rises out of the Greek empire. It starts small and grows enough to threaten the host of heaven. So if we look to see what the interpretation of that was, um, which tells us how that actually happens in real life, the biblical interpretation that is in this passage says the last one is a king different from the others. He will subdue three other kings. He is impudent, a master of intrigue and deception. He's strong, but not by his own power. That's interesting. He will cause great devastation and will be very successful. So is that the question that we ask ourselves as biblical interpreters would be, is that a historical king that has already happened? Is that, have we reached that time skip somewhere in this? We have to skip to the end of days because that's where all these prophecies end up is at the very end of days. Um, when the, all of the dominions of all the kingdoms of all the world are, are taken away and given to um, 
the the one the print the one the the branch the root of jesse with jesus you know that we would call him as christians and all dominion and power belongs to him and there is peace and 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 all dominion and power the kingdom itself which is given to the people of god so that hasn't happened yet that's not going to happen till the end so somewhere in this part that we're looking at there has to be a time gap a time lapse between roman empire and the end and people draw that line in different places I was going to say, where is it? Yeah. <laughs> like, I'm making notes. <laughs> and Daniel- is this one of those times where, you know, I've, I've, I've heard a lot of scholars say that, that a lot of the prophets basically, when they would have these visions, it was like looking at a succession of mountaintops and a mountain range, but there's lots of valley in between. Oh, that they I love see. that. I love that imagery. That's exactly what's going on here. What great imagery. Yes. Yes. And as we go, we're layering our prophets. Okay. We've read, we're down to like, we only have two little bitty ones left, you know? So, so um, we've pretty much got all the prophecy. Uh, There's, there's just a little bit left and we've seen consistency. We know the big things that are going to happen. We see the mountaintops that they consistently see. Mm -hmm. What Daniel begins to do is fill in some of these gaps. And we get a little more detail about what happens in between the peaks and more to come. There's a sequel to this story. So um, uh, in in the the next bit uh, under chapter eight, the horn sets itself up as equal to the commander of the host. It prospers in everything. And it throws truth to the ground. So the uh, interpretation in Daniel 8.25 says, this king will feel himself to be superior above the holy ones. He will, he, he will speak out against the most high. He will destroy many and will stand against the prince of princes, which presumably is Jesus, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, but he's he's definitely setting himself up as God, and he sees himself as God. It's kind of sobering. So back in in the second column under ch- chapter seven, he the, in the four beast vision, this horn wages war on the holy ones. And is winning. That's chilling. Right? If you're Israel. (laughs) Um, In chapter 8, it says he stops daily sacrifice and destroys, throws down, takes over the sanctuary, the temple. The holy people and the sacrifices will be given over to it for a time. That's also chilling to know that the prophets see a time where the people of God are under the power of this despot. 
you know, Gail, that part about um, where he felt he was standing, he was, he was God. Mm-hmm. The Romans felt that their emperors were anointed by God. Absolutely. And um, uh, they did, I mean, you know, the people of God at that time, the Hebrew people, they were definitely under the thumb of the Roman emperors. Yep. So that holds true to that. Yep. Renee, did you say something? I was, tr- uh, no, I was thinking to myself when it came out, I was trying to figure out because when Nero became emperor and started destroying stuff in, in Rome and other people, you know, the, the fights and everything, the gladiators and all that, I believe Nero said he was a god. Yeah, he's not alone. They, many of them. Would many say of them before yes. him. Well, yeah, okay. we're going to come to one in remember. particular. I couldn't remember. <laughs> yeah, we're going to yeah, come they... to one in particular here in Daniel. We're going to hit one of the, um, as we search for the parallels in history, we're going to hit one called Antiochus, the fourth Epiphanes. Oh, and, okay. And he, he named himself Epiphanes, meaning the manifest God. Right. <laughs> God in person, you know. Um, and, and, and he, uh, checks a lot of these boxes. So we will, we will see as we go along, but yes, there's many choices and that's why you can't just draw the line. You can't just say it's this and it's not that anybody that tells you that you, you need to just think in your heart, they haven't done all their homework. The dog ate part of it, you know, So um, he wages war on the Holy Ones and is winning. He stops the daily sacrifice, destroys the sanctuary. Um, The holy people and sacrifices given over to him. Um, It will be 2300 evenings and mornings from the desolating crime when the sacrifices are stopped until the sanctuary is reconstructed which is six or three years, depending on how you count it. Okay. So if you think about that, this has to be talking about after the temple has been rebuilt, because at the time when Daniel Mm -hmm. started out, the temple is destroyed. It hadn't been rebuilt yet after the end of 70 years. They're about to go do that, but it hadn't been done. So during these, sometime during these, um, really pretty quickly here during the reign of Cyrus and, and, and the guy who comes right after him in his kingdom, they, the temple gets rebuilt. Okay. And sacrifices start up again. So Daniel is seeing a time in the future when this 10th horn, this, this little King comes and and stops the sacrifices again and somehow desecrates that sanctuary. He oppresses the holy people, tries to change the uh, set slash appointed times and the laws. Um, the people will be delivered into his hands for a time, times, and half a time, which if a time is a year, that would be one a time, which is one year, times, which is two years, and a half a time, which is, would be a half a year, so three and a half years. That's how it is interpreted by most people who are looking at this in any way, literally at all. Um, but it doesn't have to be that. It's just best guess. So we're almost done. 
So we're down to the feet of iron and clay. That's the mixture on the first statue that was destroyed by a stone not made by human hands. Who would that be? <laughs> that would, to a Christian, that's going to be Jesus. Jesus. Right? So if we think, if we back up right there for a second, what that is saying to us is that this prophecy is seen forward to Jesus coming. When second coming, when all dominion and power is and glory is given to Jesus and the kingdom is given to the holy ones of God. Okay. To rule. Doesn't mean everybody else is wiped out. It's just the government's now going to be a little different. <laughs> all right. It's that's those are never prophecies that everybody else is wiped out. Okay. So um in chapter seven. Uh, that that period of time, the ancient of days is the judge. The ancient of days judges in favor of the holy ones. The boastful horn is slain and its body is thrown into the fire coming from the throne of the ancient of days. That all sounds in time to me. That sounds like that little horn is in time stuff. So if the if the little horn is end times, then that would imply that it didn't really have anything to do with the Roman Empire. It well, unless it would, there's more it, than it, one little horn, <laughs> or or it implies that the Roman Empire is seen. You know that those mixed feet of iron and clay is the time that we're living in. Okay. Mm. All right. Okay. And, where the Roman Empire has disintegrated, but it's still forming the basic blocks of, of our society, right? And, and, um, and, and it could be, this is, I think this is where we're beginning to see pretzel time. We're beginning to see that, yeah, we're going to see in Daniel that all this stuff is going to line up with, with, with finally with Antiochus Epiphanes. Um, and, but then there's like this gap that happens that, and, and we're living in this gap. And then all this other, there's these other things that just clearly can't happen till the end. So is there going to be another king with a boastful mouth? Is Antiochus Epiphanes just kind of a foreshadowing of the one that's really being talked about here? I don't know. Uh, if we were supposed to know all that, we would have more information, you know? So we will, we are going to glean all the information we can out of all the prophecies here and to come. And then we're just going to let it sit. We're not going to speculate. We're not going to try to force the pieces to fit. We're not going to say, well, it's clearly this guy or the other guy. We're just, uh, I mean, you can, but you can't do it in my class. And so, uh, <laughs> But we're just going to be prepared in the same way that if I was wanting to meet somebody I had never met, I would tell them, I am the lady that looks like a grandmother dressed in a red Mickey Mouse shirt and um, sitting at the cafe where we're going to meet. You'll know me when you see me. Okay, that's how we need to look at these prophecies. All right. So um, 
The boastful horn is slain and its body is thrown in the fire coming from the throne of the Ancient of Days. The other three beasts meaning are allowed to live for an appointed time. So um, clearly there's some, which is interesting because we're thinking like the Persians were overthrown and then Greece and then that broke up and then not, you know, but we do still have those influences in our feet of iron and clay, we still have Iran and Iraq and Greece. And, you know, we have all of these elements and dominions in our world today. So one, then finally, one like a son of man comes into the presence of the ancient of days and is given all power and authority and glory and his kingdom will never be destroyed. So Gabriel tells in the far right corner, the very last part, Gabriel tells, says these visions concern the end times. He uses that word, those words, okay? The time of wrath, which we know is code for day of the Lord, right? We've, we've, we've run across this lots of times before. We know what that means. It is during that time in the interpretation, this is like literal, physical, this is what's going to happen. The court will sit. The king's power will be taken away and destroyed forever. It will be destroyed, but not by human power. Now that's in chapter eight. And that tracks with that stone from the statue, right? Back in chapter two. It's going to be Jesus. And the time comes for the holy ones to possess the kingdom and the power and authority and glory of all the kingdoms will be handed over to the holy people of the most high and his slash its kingdom will last forever. So that's a wow. Yay, right? So we're going to, over the next couple of weeks, we're going to, um, we're going to finish out Daniel. And we're going to get more information. So keep this handy. You're going to want to, you know, jot notes on it. Um, but it's important to, I don't, I didn't want you to get lost in the trees. I want you to see the forest here. And that's why I laid it out on a chart for you. So any, if we have any other questions, we need to wrap up here. But any questions, comments, suggestions? <laughs> Well, the one question that popped into my head right at the end there um, is, you know, we've talked before about how when it says in the Bible that something lasts forever or for eternity, as how we happen to understand it in our modern churches, that eternity is like never ending, but more that it is a long period of time. Mm-hmm. Um that word, the, the word alam in Hebrew can mean both. It's it's almost always interpreted forever, but it can mean a, a, a long period of time. Okay. So that's left. Mm-hmm. Time is, is like a different dimension, really. You know, that's why we call it a dimension. It's not like a God, you know, it, it orders our days, but I think we're trying to fit things into our little perception that are bigger than that and a different shape than that from God's point of view. Mm -hmm. Well, and I guess if we look at a lot of things they're discovering now as science is time can be stretched and bent depending on where you 
are. And <laughs> that God speaks something into being long before we ever realize it, before we see it, right? You know? Right. Mm-hmm. Right. So we have So to- I don't have a I'm sorry. Go ahead. I don't have a question. I just want to show some gratitude for you because the work that you put into the study guides and the charts and the visuals to break it down for us to discuss it is very, very meaningful and helpful. And thank you very much. Oh, you are so welcome. You are so welcome. It's a, we second that. It's it's a challenge to try to take this and make it accessible um, without and not overwhelm you. And I don't always get it right, but, but I really, really want to give this gift to you. Yeah, the, I like the, the color. The chart was awesome. <laughs> yes, more color in there for for Julia. <laughs> Need a color. <laughs> oh, y'all are hilarious. But then, then again, who are we to to say whether or not you're right? Yeah, I mean, who am I to say whether or not I'm right? Mm-hmm. Right. Who right. You know, <laughs> I'm just trying to give you the. I, I'm telling you, I'm giving you everything I know. Trying to leave all the doors open trying to tell you where the edges are fuzzy and, and, and let you and God talk about this. So I Thank love you for you. the reminder of just even telling us if we were supposed to know, we would have had more information. I think we, I get caught up in seeing something like this and be like, okay. Yeah. Like, what does it mean? How come I'm not getting it? And at the end of the day, it's, it's okay to not quite grasp it. Yes. <laughs> it yeah, you can't take, Take this little piece of the Bible and, you know, make it into a little square and stack it on a shelf. <laughs> Not to That's say right. you won't get it one day. That's right. True. And That's besides, right. Daniel didn't get it either. I know, right? He was smarter than all of us put together. So <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is great. Rhonda, did you have a comment? I saw you click on and I did not. <laughs> Scott, (laughs) y'all, y'all are, y'all are quiet, silent, sneaky types. You're going to come up at the end and you're just going to have this big thing that you're going to tell us. (laughs) Yeah, no, I'm just amazed at all the history, like Renee's talking about Nero and people talking, and I'm like, there's a reason why I didn't like history. I'm with you. I'm just like, why? I'm like, yeah, like I remember anything. (laughs) <laughs> when I went to college, my I was an elementary school child teacher was my major. My minor was history. Ah, there you go. Ah, very good. That's because cool. I love history, and I still do. I still, whenever anything I read anything, and this happened then, I was like, wait a minute, let me go. Can <laughs> I just <laughs> say that I hated history and geography? So this is a <laughs> <of> love. So <laughs> I just can't tell. <laughs> no. In college, I, one of the first classes I took was cultural geography. And once I began to see geography that way, it just changed the world. And that's kind of for me. And that's kind of what you do here is putting mm-hmm. people to the places and how they move. And that makes it much more relevant. And, and I'll, my background, um, I've taught a lot of mythology. And when, you know, Julia was speaking about uh, Lucifer and Babylon was thrown in here, it, that all ties back to that because Lucifer comes up in Babylon Empire times and is referred to something about a fourth star with Venus because we were talking about four today 
Um, and in Isaiah, I think he says something about him falling from that he sees him like the star falling from the morning earth to star. The yeah, you know, and, yes. and Jesus has some things to say about using that same language. It's mm-hmm. you know, Jesus lived in a culture too. Yeah, but it is really it cool there. when all these little things start stacking up, yeah. and it's like it's cool because then you can say, oh, look at this little piece, and it's like this fits here and this fit there in history. And like Joe was saying in cultural geography, it fit there. And it's like, you can actually see where it happened. Yes. It's like when, it's like when you go to places in the world, whether it's in the United States or, or other countries, and you're in a place where this historical event happened and you're like, aha, Uh (laughs) this this means so much more like when we were we were in Virginia for five years and the the um uh the the civil war particularly and the and the the um revolution became much more meaningful to me because of seeing all these places where these things happened Mm -hmm. for that I was like eh yeah. I especially it's, love the reframe on how you, when you talked about the the river of fire coming out from the throne I like I just I'm so encouraged now to have a a new opportunity to view some things that I used to view at even bringing up the Lucifer again things like that but that river of fire now what we have have grown to consider um in terms of what fire can stand for and the purpose like that was mm-hmm. uh, just much more encouraging than I've ever, you know, when I read that before, it's like, ah, and now today I'm like, yeah, so, <laughs> um, but I, but I appreciate in fact, everybody's comment, Pastor Gail, I just, am, I appreciate, especially your humility of you're often reminding us, you're never telling us this is the way it is. Even as you presented this, there's been multiple times where you say, this is how I'm seeing it. Um, so just thank you for your humility, but also for sharing confidently and boldly what you have, what, what you've come to discover for yourself. So I appreciate yeah, that. Yeah, it's just, you know, this is where I am in this point of time. But it's like some, I had somebody uh, contact me yesterday who had been listening to my 2006 podcast and wanted to know what I thought about current world events with respect to Daniel. And I had to tell her, you know, my shift, my thinking has shift, has shifted since then. You know, um, it's it's, and I will continue to shift. I, I hope that you all do, um, and continue yeah. to listen to the spirit and be open to the spirit, and not be any more bound by what other people tell you um, about this stuff. That that you actually have a lot more context. Um, and that makes me very happy. I love you all. I'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye.